Professors FM. Doug, as you know, we have joined the Professors FM podcast network. So it's extremely exciting. It's like for the first time in my life, I'm going to have academic friends. This is big. And as part of this, we're going to talk about some of the other shows on the network. One of the things we talk a lot about in terms of sports analytics is the role of incentives, right? It's all about incentives. And so one of the other shows on the network is called Taxes for the Masses, brought to you by Lisa DeSimone from the University of Texas and Bridget Stomberg from Indiana University. And so what these two ladies do is they dive into all things taxes. I think it's a great compliment to what we do. In some ways, there's nothing bigger in public policy than taxes in terms of shaping the economy and society because taxes change how people behave. So, you know, give it a listen. Great show. Analytics with Mike Lewis, the podcast where we talk about everything you need to know about sports analytics. Here's your host, Mike Lewis, marketing professor at Emory University. Welcome, everyone. This is Mike Lewis with Fanalytics Podcast. Today's agenda is focused on the NBA. So, the NBA is about to kick off its 2019 2020 season uh, in just a couple of weeks. And it's a season that has, well, let me put it this way. If you had asked me the big NBA story a couple of weeks ago, let's say before when we were back in September, I would have said that the big story is, let's say, player movement. Um, It was a fairly amazing offseason in terms of some of the uh, NBA superstars or really high-profile players shifting from one location to another. Now, this is, uh, you know, player movement's a, a great thing in a lot of ways, and, well, depending on where you sit, it can also be an unfortunate thing. You know, if you're sitting in Toronto, it's a fairly unfortunate situation. If you're sitting, um, if you live in L.A. and you don't happen to be a Lakers fan, player movement can be, um, you know, sort of an, an awesome situation in terms of renewing your hope. As the season soon commences. Like I said, from my perspective, and you know, I'm a marketing professor, so it might be a little bit skewed. It was very much a story of rebalancing of superstar players, taking on a little bit more power, deciding where they're going to play, who they're going to team up with. And this potentially was going to have a lot of impact on the, let's say the, the distribution of brand equity across the league. So with that in mind, it was a it was a great year for me to get back into the the business of doing a preseason NBA fan base analysis. So for those of you that don't know, one of the one of the things I do almost annually. It's actually been a while since I did the NBA, but one of the things I do across all the different professional leagues, sometimes with the college at the college level as well, is to well create a statistical analysis of you know, consumer demand and fan engagement that the output of which is a ranking of fan bases and brands across different professional leagues. So in the case of the NBA, th- this player movement was of special interest to me because as 
let's say, you know, as folks moved on from Toronto and Oklahoma City to the Los Angeles Clippers or other superstars moved from Golden State to, uh, I want to say New Jersey, but to the Brooklyn Nets, this is a really kind of fascinating branding story. Now, the NBA as a league has always been a star-driven league. I think you could also say that it's been a star franchise driven league. I mean, if you go back over the history of the NBA and you got to start somewhere. So I'll start with, um, you know, if we go back to, let's say the late seventies, uh, you know, I, I can even remember playing a video game on an Apple II computer that I think was Julius Irving versus Larry Bird. And, and, and so that says something, I think it was a one-on-one, one-on-one basketball game. It's important in that, that has always been the focal point of the league. And so if we go back to the late 70s, early 80s, the story of the NBA is very much a story of um, you know, Dr. J, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, moving on to LeBron James, now uh, in, the, in the Steph Curry era. Now, that's one way to look at the NBA. The other way to look at the NBA is that it's a story of iconic teams. And as a marketing guy, maybe I'll say iconic brands. And so we've got the Boston Celtics, the Los Angeles Lakers. You know, I, should, I, I almost want to say that, you know, the Philadelphia 76ers back in the day in the, in the late 70s, early 80s as well. Moving on to the Detroit Pistons, then shifting to the Michael Jordan-led Chicago Bulls up until the present day of the, you know, the Golden State Warriors as the premier or sort of dominant team in the league. So the NBA has always been, now, now I, I think it's, it's intentional that I do that, that I talk about the players and then I talk about the teams because to some extent players and teams do tend to be intermixed, right? I mean, it, it's hard to think of you know, Magic Johnson and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or Kobe Bryant and uh, Shaquille O'Neal without thinking about the Lakers. But that said, you know, it, that's just the nature of the NBA, of the NBA business. It's star players, and over time, these star players create, let's say, star teams. Right? So, as we head into the, as we head into the the season, like I said, I, I've done a bit of a statistical work, and you know what the the background on this is, a pretty intensive data collection exercise, and so the foundation for the my my look at uh, fan bases, is the gathering of about twenty years of well just about any data that I can think is particularly relevant to the question. Okay, and so. I collect data on attendance. I collect data on ticket prices, data on city populations, uh, data on median incomes in cities, data on the capacity of stadiums, data on historical performance and current performance, such as one-loss records, also cumulative championships, cumulative playoff appearances. Basically, I collect data on just about anything I can think of, that affects consumer demand. Over the past couple of years, I've actually even added collecting data on social media. Twitter is 
you know, at this point, I've got about I think six, seven years of Twitter following data for for all the teams in the league. Uh, maybe actually, I think actually we go back to 2012, so seven, eight years of Twitter data. A little bit less data in terms of Instagram, Facebook. Well, Instagram and Facebook are the other two platforms that I've done some uh, data collection on. Okay, so if you want to uh, take a look at the full analysis. I will be publishing the full analysis on my relatively new website, which is fanalyticswithmikelewis.com. Now, if you've been following the, the sports analytics project for a while, previously I used to publish a lot of stuff on my, um, my Emory University webpage, which was scholarblogs.emory.edu backslash ESMA backslash. Um, starting to migrate stuff over to the Fanalytics with Mike Lewis uh, spot, well, for a, for a variety of reasons, but that will be the location uh, to sort of find the, the fuller analysis and the detailed tables. I mean, you know, my goal today talking to you guys is to give you some insights into what's going, what's going on behind the scenes in the analysis and to give you some high points, to give you maybe a, a little bit more commentary. But if you want the full results, if you want the full table, you know, go to the website where you can find you know, a few more. So it's sort of different kind of details on the podcast versus the details that I supply on the, uh, on the website. They're very much kind of companion pieces to each other. Okay, so how do I take a look at fan bases? I tend to use, well, and let me, let me sort of pat myself on the back at the start of this. My starting point is that I'm doing, I'm doing this work based on the data. I'm learning the data speak. And so I, I think if you go out there on the web and you look around for the best fan bases, you can find a lot of stuff. And it just tends to be, you know, mostly opinion with a few pieces of data, a few anecdotes. That's not what's happening here. What's happening here is we are essentially gathering all the data we can find, all the data that we can think of, and we're letting the data speak. Okay. I will also say, and I'll come back around to some of this as well, that I'm very sort of willing to acknowledge some of the, the flaws in the individual metrics that we're looking at. Okay. Okay, so that being said, so the first metric I look at, very much kind of the gold standard in this, is something I call fan equity. Fan equity is a revenue premium type brand equity model. Okay, so the idea in a revenue premium model is to understand the excess revenue that one brand, in this case a team, is generating relative to another brand or team. All things equal. That's really the key to all the metrics I look at. Okay, so what do I mean by all things equal? In the case of sports, you know, we've, we've got a little bit of a problem, right? We, we can have a New York team that is winning, you know, obviously not going to happen this year, but we can have a New York team that is, well, I'm thinking of the Knicks. I don't know how the, the Nets will do. We can have a New York team that is winning a high percentage of its games, okay? Is it fair to compare the financial results, the revenue results for that type of franchise versus, let's say, a team located in a market like Milwaukee that may be struggling in any given year, okay? Hypothetical, okay? We're not talking about, you know, I'm not giving a prediction on the relative performance of the Bucks versus the Knicks at this point. 
it's not fair, right? Intuitively, it doesn't make sense. In the, in the case of New York, you're talking about a market with maybe 20 million people, a fairly high median income. Uh, if the team is winning a lot of games, if they're winning 70, 80% of their games, you would expect demand to be incredibly high, right? That that team, that that would just be a very lucrative situation. What we want to do, and in contrast, you know, if my if the team located in Milwaukee has, you know, a market size of 1.2 million folks and a relatively lower median income, it's just not an apples to apples comparison. So what I do in this fan equity analysis is I build a statistical model of how the league works in terms of revenues, right? which means that I build a statistical model that predicts each team's revenues as a function of all the explanatory variables that I can think of that are separate from that team's brand, okay? From the essence of what that team is, you know, whether it's the Lakers or the Bucks or the 76ers. Okay, so it's a statistical model that predicts revenues as a function of population, stadium capacity, uh, median income in the market, one loss record, did the team make the playoffs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I then use that statistical model to come up with a predicted value of revenue for each team in the league. And then the way I assess fan loyalty or brand equity is to compare the team's actual results with what the model predicts, okay? So at its essence, what I'm doing is I'm looking at how teams perform versus how the league works on average, okay? That's perhaps too quick, but the logic, you know, hopefully the logic gets across. A model of the league based on all the data we can find and then a comparison of that model to team's actual results, what's left over, we'll say, or our claim or our, our assumption is that that is something that reflects the engagement, loyalty of the fans, the brand equity of the teams. Now, that's, that's, that's the fan equity measure. The other two, uh, well, the, the, the next measure I use um, that you'll see reported on the website is social equity. Similar model, but in this case, the dependent variable, okay, so the thing that I'm interested in predicting is social media following. So again, same sort of procedure. Take a look at each team's, you know, sort of build a model of how social media following works in the league, and then take a look at how each team compares to that model. Uh, the third metric I use is road equity. This one's a little bit simpler. This is a model that predicts how teams draw, a statistical model that basically looks at how teams draw on the road, right? That one is a, a you know, a, the road equity, the road equity model is based on about 20 years of data. The fan equity model, about 20 years of data. The social equity model on, you know, six, seven years of data. Okay, so that's my, that's, that's my starting point for thinking about fandom. And there's, um, you know, a few, comments should, a few comments should be made. All of these measures have their pluses and minuses. I mean, that, that's, that is something that I will acknowledge at the outset. The fan equity measure is based on consumers' willingness to attend and spend. That is largely the gold standard in terms of marketing, right? That people are willing to open up their wallet. They're willing to get into their car or get in the train to take the time to come to the arena. 
So it's really a measure of commitment on the part of the fans. On the downside, sort of a pushback and why that might not be the best measure, some fans might say, well, a lot of fans are priced out of the arena. Okay. Could also make the argument that maybe capacities are excessively constrained in some markets, and so we don't get a true sense of just how much demand there is. We could also make uh, an argument that not all owners are pricing in an effort to maximize their revenues. Okay, So fan equity, great measure. Probably, the like I said, the gold standard, the best measure, because it really gets at the heart of consumers being willing to spend. But there are a few downsides to it, a few potential criticisms. The social media equity measure gets us some stuff that the fan equity measure does not get. You know, for example, in terms of social equity, you don't have to live in the market to follow the team. Okay? So it's potentially getting at a different element of fan of fandom, right? So, you know, if you are living in Cincinnati, Ohio, and your favorite team is the Lakers, well, it's not really realistic to think that you're going to be able to spend money by going to the games in the arena, but you can sure follow them on social media. So the social media metric has some benefits in terms of it's more national in orientation, right? Um, it is capturing fandom that is may not be, you know, th- there may be fans, but perhaps not willing to actually spend or not in a financial position to, um, to support the team by going to the arena. The social media measure may also provide some benefits in, in terms of it being a little bit more forward-looking. Social media still skews a little bit younger, particularly depending on which platform you're looking at. Instagram probably skews younger than Twitter and Twitter younger than Facebook. So uh, the social media measure might be something of a glimpse into the future uh, in terms of where fandom may be going. Now on the downside, social media tends to be a sticky metric. Now, by sticky, what I mean is social media tends to tick upwards, but only very seldomly does it actually go downwards. Now, why is this an issue? Give you one quick example. Well, one team and one name. The Cleveland Cavaliers and LeBron James. Okay, So when LeBron James recently, you know, in his last trip to Cleveland. When LeBron James leaves Miami, comes to Cleveland, what happens to the Cavaliers' social following? It bumps up. I think in the case of Twitter that the Cavs' social following almost doubled when LeBron James returned to Cleveland from Miami. And so to some extent, you can say, well, one of the great things about social media is how responsive it is, right? When LeBron James was still playing in Miami, the Cavaliers were not a premier brand, but the day he moved back, the Cavaliers rocket up the list in terms of the NBA's most premier franchises. Okay? So it's kind of nice that the social media equity measure will give us that, let's say, very quick feedback in terms of the importance of player movement. This, this past off season with some of the movement, that's an awesome trait for the social media metric. But what's the problem? Okay. When LeBron James left Cleveland to go to, Lo- to Los Angeles Lakers, what happened to the Cavs' social media? Did it go back down to its pre-LeBron uh, levels? Nope. Stayed about the same. So it remained relatively flat. So, you know, and, and I could almost 
I could imagine there might be some suggestions. Well, maybe you should look at the rates of change. You know, potentially there are all sorts of things we could do. Um, or maybe there are different ways we could look at the social media metrics as in particular, let's say looking at rates of change year over year, but in a simple sense, it's, you know, there's a little bit of a problem with social media data and that it's sticky in terms of going downwards. Okay. The road equity measure is kind of a, I, I think this is a, a nice classic type of measure of what a teams actually do on the road you know, to get away from the NBA for just a second, you know, I, I live in the city of Atlanta and it's, um, when I moved to Atlanta, it was, you know, Atlanta has, um, Atlanta's made great strides in terms of sports fandom over the last few years. But when I moved down here, it's actually about 10 years ago. One of the things people would say is one of the nice things about moving to Atlanta is you could always see your team play that you could go see the, the Patriots or the Steelers if they were playing the Falcons, because they're just tended to be not that much, you know, Atlanta fandom tended to be a little bit on the weaker side. And so road equity is an interesting metric in that it allows us to capture natural, uh, sort of, let's say not natural, national following of different teams. So those are the three metrics that I, that I like to think about or sort of that I calculate when I'm looking at uh, fan bases across the league. I, I like to look at these multiple metrics, you know, like I said, they both have, they all have pluses, they all have minuses. My thought is that if I can take these three fairly different metrics, and actually there, there's a couple different ways to combine these, and I, and I play with some different stuff, you know, for the, for the more statistically oriented out there. I've even done some stuff like do a factor analysis to pull out the underlying brand equity effect of what's driving all three metrics. But for most folks out there, what I do is I will do a relatively simple combination of the three metrics. Uh, the, the weighting I used this year was 50% for fan equity. Like I said, I will always come back to what consumers actually do with their wallets versus what they say in terms of who they like via something like the social media metric. And so the, the, the weighting I use to get an overall ranking is 50% for fan equity, 25% for social media equity, and 25% for road equity. Okay, so that's the background on the study. So where did we end up? And, and like I said, you know, for full details, you know, head over to the fanalytics with Mike Lewis, uh, com website. That'll give you the full table. But just some highlights in terms of the, the winners and the losers and where teams have been moving year over year. So my top five this year going into, going into the NBA season are the Lakers and number one, and I don't think there's any real mystery there. Even, even as the Lakers are, uh, you know, the, the Lakers brand, the, the strength of this, you know, this was a big story last year in terms of LeBron James' decision of where to relocate from Cleveland. Um, the Lakers have been a marquee brand for decades. There's a, you know, we go from Kareem Abdul-Jabbar to Magic Johnson to Kobe Bryant to Shaquille O'Neal, a legacy of championships. It is a, you know, it, the Lakers are sort of a dilemma for, for the league in a lot of ways, or they, they, have been a, they have been of recent times, right? So your premier team or one of your premier teams has also struggled mightily on the court for the last few years in terms of missing the playoffs. You know, this year with, and, and you know, keep in mind that this analysis is 
backwards looking. So this year, looking ahead, and this is what I was saying, you know, that the big story for the NBA was in terms of this player movement. So this year, the Lakers now have Anthony Davis to go with LeBron James. And so two of the top 10 players in the NBA are now located at the NBA's uh, premier franchise. So in some ways, this is one of the real victories for, for the league going into the 2019-2020 season. Number two on the list are the Golden State Warriors. Now, this was an interesting ranking. Prior to, I'd actually taken a couple years away from the NBA, from doing the NBA rankings. The last time I did this, I think it was 2016. And this was, uh, the Golden State Warriors were a team I got a lot of pushback on. This was uh, the era, 2016, the, the Warriors were rapidly or had become a premier NBA team on the court. But if you looked at the numbers, they tended to not be that uh, competitive in terms of, let's say, these fan engagement scores. And so this is, uh, you know, redoing this analysis now for the first time in three, four years, that the Golden State Warriors have moved to the number two position is actually kind of a nice selling point for the analysis. That, and it's also a good sports marketing story that the key to moving up is not just winning one championship or starting to be competitive, but to build a virtual legacy of championships and all-stars and iconic players. Number three on the list are the Chicago Bulls. It's an interesting one, you know, given how they've struggled the last few years. But again, it speaks to the strength of this analysis. The Bulls still do very well in terms of revenues. They do very well in terms of social, despite maybe not being all that competitive the last few years. Number four are the Boston Celtics. Okay, Again, true NBA royalty. Um, you know, I, I think if you ask the man on the street who the top NBA brands were, I think the you know the quick answer would be uh, number one lakers well you know this this is kind of a good one right because it would really depend on in terms of age if you asked a young person probably straight out golden state warriors are number one if you ask someone over 50 they might still say that the top brands are the los angeles lakers and the boston celtics so in some ways it's kind of nice to get this kind of finding because it really you know it's kind of a sanity check on the statistical analysis okay number five though this is where i'm gonna say look the numbers speak. I will fully acknowledge the limitations of the model. Number five in this analysis are the Cleveland Cavaliers. Okay. Do the Cavaliers belong at that point going into this season? Probably not. So why are they there? What I do in terms of getting my overall rankings is I use the last three years of brand equity results to sort of smooth out any noise in the data. So the Cavs score is actually still includes a couple of years of LeBron James being on that team. The other thing is this issue of the stickiness of social media. The Cavs score, in terms of social media ranking, they, they actually end up being number three. And this is very much a legacy of the LeBron James uh, time uh, at, at, in that city. Okay, The other team I want to mention when we're talking about the top, because in all previous analyses, the New York Knicks tended to be in the top three. And so this year, the Knicks actually finished seventh. If I look at the individual measures, the Knicks still do astonishingly well in terms of fan equity. So in terms of revenues, and you think about this, the Knicks have not performed well in the court. It is a testament to the strength of that brand locally and the unique nature of that market 
that they are still a revenue, an absolute revenue powerhouse. Where the Knicks fall short is in terms of social equity and in terms of road equity. So, you know, basically the way to look at it is for a team located in the New York metro metro area, they do not have the social following that one would that one might expect they should have. And again, you know, it's like I'm, I'm throwing stones at the Knicks, but you know, finishing seventh on this list uh, despite the last few years of on-court performances actually and, and off-court controversies is actually pretty remarkable. Okay, now for potentially the <laughs> the the anger-inducing part of the list. Though for the <laughs> though for the NBA, we don't this this list doesn't seem to generate nearly as much anger as some of my rankings in other leagues. I'll do a brief countdown for the bottom five. So fifth from the bottom, the Detroit Pistons. This is an interesting one to me. Uh, I grew up in Chicago, and so the fact that the Bulls are such a high-equity brand is interesting given that the the Pistons are not. You know, the Pistons and the Bulls both had their glory days at about the same time period, the Pistons before the Bulls. But for whatever reason, the Bulls were able to turn that into becoming a long-term iconic NBA franchise as well. The Pistons were not. Probably has something to do with the nature of the city and the nature of the stars. Uh, Also, the number of championships. Michael Jordan, widely regarded as one of the top, maybe the top player in the history of the NBA, if not the top player, maybe one, two, or three. Uh, Whereas the Pistons were led by Isaiah Thomas, legit Amazing NBA All-Star, but maybe not a historical grade at the level of a Michael Jordan. Uh, Fourth from the bottom, the Brooklyn Nets. This one really highlights the way this model works. So if you just were to look at overall revenues and overall numbers, the Nets would perform fairly middle of the pack. But what we're doing here, you know, what, what underlies this analysis is a look at what should be done based on market size. So the the problem the Nets have in this analysis is that they just don't perform all that well compared to some of the other major market teams, such as the Lakers, the Bulls, or or the Knicks. Uh, Number three from the bottom, we've got Charlotte. Two from the bottom, the Grizzlies, the Memphis Grizzlies. And at the very bottom, we have the Washington Wizards. Not a lot to say about some of these teams. I think they all end up sort of being in the same general, the same general circumstances of teams that, you know, have not had histories of success. I mean, clearly no history of championships here. Uh, also not histories of having the, the, the true star players that tend to move the NBA. I mean, I, I think, you know, I started off talking about, about the nature of, you know, star player, the NBA being a star player driven the league. It's an interesting uh, aside. And, you know, sometimes I feel like I should apologize for saying the word interesting. I think that's the legacy of being an academic. Uh, we call everything interesting. And as I do more of these podcast episodes, it's something I think I need to stop doing. Um, but the, these teams have all been sort of middle of the road for too long or perhaps near the the bottom of you know in general near the bottom or sort of the the bottom half maybe non-playoff teams or rare playoff occurrences and even when they've had star players they have not been the 
top one, two, three, or even top five players, which seems to be the key to generating legitimate excitement uh, or fandom in the NBA. Okay, so like I said, a quick overview of the the analysis that we're doing many more details and especially a detailed table which gives you the ranks for all all the teams in the league and across all the different the, the three different uh, fandom based measures of fan equity social equity and road equity last thing i want to do is make a couple of comments related to the upcoming nba season okay in terms of stuff that has very much been in the the news of late, okay. And, and look, so the the big NBA story, uh, you know, from a, and it's both on court and a marketing story. And I, I think the analysis we just talked about sort of highlights why this is this is stuff is of such importance to the business of the league. The Lakers are kind of number one in the, in the fan equity rankings, but they got competition in town, right? Now you've got the Los Angeles Clippers with uh, Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, and suddenly they are a legit contender. So how does the Los Angeles Clippers having legitimate star power um, and star power that has proven able to compete at the highest levels of the NBA, how does that affect the local dynamics in Los Angeles? Do the Clippers have the potential to also move into rarefied, uh, into the rarefied air of um, sort of the premier NBA brands? The other big story is on the other side of the coast, right? So the the Brooklyn Nets with Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. This one is even more interesting, right? Because potentially they've got enough on-court firepower to make a very deep playoff run and perhaps make it to the to the championship. The Knicks have long been a dominant revenue franchise. And so now suddenly, does this star power, does this begin to shift the balance? And so I'll say this as a as a marketing guy. Brands can be interesting things in terms of, you know, you can misuse a brand and you can mismanage a brand. Uh, you know, I, I work in universities and, you know, perhaps, probably no, I know a bit of a non sequitur there, but you know, there's, there may be no other business where with brands as strong as universities and how persistent these brands are. Harvard is the number one school in America. It was the number one school 20 years ago. It's the number one school 20 years in the future. The Knicks were the number one basketball franchise in the New York area 20 years ago. They're the number one basketball franchise now. Will they be the number one franchise 20 years in the future? This movement of players to the, to the Nets suddenly makes us a much more fascinating question to, uh, to take a look at as the season progresses. Okay, last thing, real quick, and I kind of want to stay out of the weeds on this one. But I feel like it's necessary to say something. So going into this uh, going into this NBA preview, I thought very much that the big NBA story was going to be player movement, um, sort of a rebalancing of the powerhouse brands in the league. But early the early and first couple of weeks of October have generated an absolute firestorm in terms of the NBA trying to deal with China. 
well, and, and as I'm sure everyone listening knows, the NBA sort of ran into a bit of a problem, a situation following a Daryl Morey tweet that supported the Hong Kong protesters. I, I, I don't want to, like I said, I, this is such an interesting and important issue in the, in the long term that I don't want to get too much into it. I don't want to give it sort of dump. I don't want to pay. I want to, it's a topic that I would like to pay probably a, a full hour long episode to. I do think it is the most important business story, both of this year and potentially of the long term. I mean, I don't think from the NBA's perspective, I don't think there's any mystery in terms of why they care so much about China. An NBA franchise, and we're, we're talking about, you know, iconic franchises like the Lakers or the Celtics. These may be franchises that have tens of millions of fans. There are sports franchises across the globe, the EPL teams, English Premier League teams, that may have hundreds of millions of fans. And so I think the NBA, and I don't think there's any secret here, has long wanted to become more of a global basketball brand. The key to doing that always had to be China. China has, you know, 1.5 billion fans. It sounds like there's already a lot of interest in the NBA within that market, going back to Yao Ming, his uh, time with the Houston Rockets. You know, for the NBA to sort of make more of that global move, China has always been the key. Now, I, I think the other thing that's sort of in, you know, an important part of this story is, and, and this is something more fundamental about fandom, and, and like I said, I, I'm going to do this quickly, and I'm probably going to regret doing this. The NBA over the last few years has also become a little bit more political than sports leagues have been traditionally. The NBA, I think, very much sees itself as a progressive, politically progressive organization that is interested in driving social change. Now, this is largely fine given the, you know, the audience the NBA has tried to develop in the U.S., right? I mean, sort of more urban-oriented, um, relatively younger um, in a lot of ways. Where I think the NBA got blindsided is that if you are going to be this driver of cultural change, and, and again, what a great topic from my perspective. You know, what, what I really want to talk about on the podcast and the analysis I do are very much related to fandom. Fandom is so closely linked to culture. So as the NBA, though, its approach to managing and growing its fan base has been through being a little bit political and a little bit of a cultural change agent, they just ran into a problem, right? If you're going to take that approach, I think you've got to be very aware that you're probably often going to run into people that don't want their culture changed, okay? And maybe that's the, you know, maybe that's the simplest way and the, the best way to put it. So if the NBA wants to do business and wants to do business on a global scale, the NBA needs to realize that if they enter into, let's say, I mean, going into the European market, they probably don't have a lot of problem, right? Because their politics are consistent with European EU type politics. But if they want to make a major move into a market like China, then 
they're going to run into a problem unless they can figure out a way to, I mean, so, you know, maybe what this really boils down to is just, there's just no free lunch. If you're going to use politics in your local U.S. marketing, you got to be aware that maybe that's going to cost you when you, you know, leave these shores and you try and go somewhere else. Okay. So like I said, way too much, way too short of coverage, a lot of interesting stuff happening on and that happening in that controversy. If you ask me for a prediction of what's going to happen next, how this is going to play out, I would guess that the story will rapidly fade from the U S airwaves as the season starts. But I suspect that, uh, and so in, in, this may be one of these situations where the American consumer and the American news media has a very short memory, but my suspicion is that the Chinese government and the, you know, the, the, the folks worried about the Chinese, protecting the Chinese culture, the folks worried about one China will have a much, much longer memory. So like I said, as we go into this NBA season, as we are initially heading into it, Big story, player movement, rebalancing. But as October has come into play here, the big story of the year and potentially the big story of the next 10 years is probably this uh, political situation involving the U.S., uh, the NBA and China. As always, appreciate everyone for tuning in. And let me just plug the website just one more time. Not really plugging it, but if you want to find the detailed um, the detailed charts and the detailed results. You can check those out at fanalyticswithmikelewis.com. Thanks, everyone. Bye.